<laughs> Hi, family. How are you? So good to see you all. Thanks for coming. Hey, uh, you might have noticed a new sound in the room. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you a story. If, uh, more than a year ago, I mean quite a bit more than a year ago, um, we realized that our sound system that we had was just not going to sustain us. It, it, it just, she was great, and she served us well, and um, she just ran her course. And what happened is um, the, the sound system was so old that we couldn't even buy used parts to repair it when it would break. And so uh, there was one Sunday that we came in here and they turned it on and there was nothing. Like what happened? And then there was one time where I was preaching and I don't remember which service it was in, but I'm right in the middle of the sermon and I was making a good point. <laughs> it was rare. Like you don't want to miss those opportunities. And it was like, and we were like, what, what happened? And they had to run from the sound booth out all the way down the upstairs hall and way back all the way around. That's a long run, by the way. And they had to run all the way back here and find the, the fuse box that the amplifiers for the individual speakers are wired into. Then they had to figure out which speaker was it that was actually buzzing. Then they had to just turn it off. And the problem is, at that point, we don't have amplifiers to fix one. So what happened is, in the array, lots of the speakers didn't even work. Um, and that does two things. Number one, um, it makes the speakers that do work have to work harder. And number two, um, it gives us massive gaps in the sound. And so there was hot spots where people would have their hair blown back. And then, and then there was dead spots where people were like, what? What? Like that. What? Um, one more time for the people in the back. What? Um, so that's what was happening, and it was hard to find places for people to sit, and a lot of the um, noise complaints that we got were just tied to where people were sitting. Um, so our elders made a decision, hey, we need to start updating the sound system. And again, it's been over a year. This process has been in the making, and um, so Skylark was in here. We worked them to death this week. Um, they worked hard and got everything completely switched out in one week. Um, did a great job. Um, just for the record, uh, we've worked with Skylark on a m number of projects. They're, they're a real pleasure to work with. Um, and, and we did that. And then also they brought in a sound engineer to help train our sound engineers on how to run the new system and all that stuff. The sound engineer happens to be Lee Fields, who just got off tour with Hillsong and Chris Tomlin. No big deal. So he actually is back running sound for us this morning, so that's cool. Yeah, so God's been really good to us in this process, and, and um, this has been a long time coming in. El Dango, it sounds good. It sounds good. So anyway, thank you guys for all your hard work. Uh, and um, we're going to jump into our sermon on love today. And uh, if you're doing Advent at home, I don't, I don't know if this is out of order or not. Some, some traditions do it one way. Some traditions do it a different way. Um, whatever you're doing at home with your family, do it in the order that you're supposed to do it. We'll, we'll catch all the candles eventually. It's a circle. We'll come around eventually. I feel sometimes like uh, the pig on the Toy Story when he's surfing through the channel. So he's like, 
too far, I gotta go around the horn. Like sometimes, sometimes that's what you have to do. It's just what you have to do. So we're gonna begin in uh, Luke chapter two today. And um, I really wanna recommend, and I'll keep recommending this, as a family this year, before you open your presents, um, I would encourage you to read the Christmas story together as a family. And there's two counts, one's in Matthew, one's in Luke. Here's the thing, um, Luke is shorter. So for the kids in the room, I want you to pay attention. Like when, when mom and dad say, hey, which version should we read? Luke 2 is shorter. So you get from here to presence faster, but that also reveals your heart. Um, <laughs> that, that was funny. Um, so you can read Luke 2, but you should feel really guilty about it. No, actually, uh, but I think you should do that just because it's an important reminder. Like, we're not, this isn't, you know, about just presents and all. Like, and I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate Christmas that way. I'm just saying the, the biblical narrative invites us to explore Advent in a certain kind of way. And so I, I really want to encourage us to try to make space to do that. And um, we're going to take a look at that. Last week, we talked about hope, and we compared Herod and Jesus, the, this juxtaposition of what brings us hope. Herod had everything that the world promises will bring us hope. And yet, he was the most paranoid man, maybe ever. Um, and this, this thing where we keep trying to go to the world for things that only God can provide, like it just doesn't, just doesn't work. And so Jesus steps on the scene with none of the things that Herod had and still brings hope to this day. Luke chapter 2, um, starting in verse 1, says this, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. We'll pull that apart at another time. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Now, here's the thing. I want to stop right there. And I, we've got to get rid of the picture that we've been given about a manger, like this clean wooden box, you know, that V's down and has the legs that come out and it's all hay and all this stuff. Mangers weren't used to feed animals. Mangers are used to water animals. And for the record, nothing in Israel is built out of wood. There's not really any trees there. Um, the... There's a, no shortage of rocks, though. They build everything out of stone. Like Jesus being called a tecton, carpenter's probably not a great translation. Um, stonemason would be a better way to understand what Jesus did for a living or stone worker. Um, it's, not, it's not that. Mangers are a slab of rock that's been chiseled out, hewed out to carry, to hold water to feed, uh, to water the flocks. That's what it's done. Now, just a simple question. If you're chiseling out a big slab of rock and it's just going to be used to water animals, how much concern do you give for making the bottom of that smooth? Like this isn't, this isn't pretty. It's not, 
silent night, holy night, all is calm. Nope. This is harsh and stark and heavy and hard. That's what this space is. Even, even down to where Jesus is placed. All right, let's keep reading. Because there was no place for them in the inn, uh, which is a terrible translation, inn. Doesn't say, there's no Motel 6 in Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem is a place of no significance. And, and so the question that we have to wrestle with is why? Like, why Bethlehem? Why does God choose Bethlehem? It's so not important. In fact, Micah 5.2, Micah 5.2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, which is fun to say, Next time that you hit your thumb with a hammer, <laughs> Bethlehem Ephrathah. That's the best that you can say. Who are too little among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is a ruler of Israel. Who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. But th this is what he's saying. Bethlehem was in the area of Judah, but it was so small that it wasn't even counted. Best estimates are somewhere between two and 300. Now, there's some debate about that, but right around two to 300 people live in Bethlehem. It's, it's of no import. Why be born there? There's so many better options. Why does God choose Bethlehem? I'm going to offer to you that God chooses Bethlehem to show us how much he loves us. And I'm going to unpack that for you over the rest of this time together, hopefully. So let's look at some pictures. Um, this is photo number one. Now remember last week we talked about some of the things that Herod built. And we talked about the Herodium castle where he moved a mountain. Remember that? This photo is taken from Herodium. So I'm standing on top of it. Now, let me show you something. Do you see that? See that? Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> I love Star Wars. But I'm like a stormtrooper. I can't hit anything. Um, so this right here, see this right here that I'm circling? Those are condominium units. And this whole right here, this is Jerusalem. Okay? So that Jerusalem goes there and it goes over the hill. That right there is Jerusalem. All of that. If you follow my pointer... Boop -a -doop -a -doop -a -doop -a -doop. Right over here on this is a little hill, just down in the valley over that hill right there is Bethlehem. This is the modern city of Bethlehem here. So Jesus is walking from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and he says, If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. What's he looking at? Right? Like he has a real, this is a real thing that that's not some figurative idea. But Jerusalem is right there. And Jerusalem would be a great candidate for the Savior to come. This is God's city. The temple is there. The presence of God is there. Like, yes, the presence of God is everywhere, but God lives in the temple. Like, this is the holy city. That's a perfect place for the Savior to come. Bethlehem is nothing. It's nothing. And it seems to me that that keeps being the narrative of the Bible over and over again. Let me show you what I mean. Remember the story of Jonah. So Jonah's a prophet, 
And God comes to him and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them to repent. Nineveh. In your head, you should hear, dun, 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 dun. Nineveh. Pagans. They worship the fish god. If you remember Veggie Tales, right? They're fish slappers. So the fact that Jonah was ejected from the mouth of a fish to the Ninevites is a big deal, right? It's a really big deal. But uh, he goes in, and we know that there's 120,000 people that live in Nineveh. It's a big city, plus cows. You know how we know that? It's because Jonah goes in and says, repent. And God says, I forgive them when they repent. And Jonah gets mad about it. And God comes to Jonah at the end of the book, and he's like, Jonah, how could I... How could I not forgive them? There's 120,000 people and cows. The end. That's the, that's, the, that's the worst place to end that story. That's the end of the story. Right? But it's this pagan, awful, yucky, gross, no self-respecting Jew would ever find themselves in Nineveh. Not in Nineveh. So God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah promptly goes the other direction to a town called Tarshish, which I wish they would just translate because Tarshish means paradise. Jonah wants to go to paradise. But the problem is God's not in paradise. He's in Nineveh. And so if Jonah wants to go where God is, he's got to go to Nineveh. But he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He wants to go to paradise. And I just wonder if for you and I, there isn't some sort of a connection there. Because I think for many of us, we would love to live our life in paradise, but we don't meet God there. We meet God in Nineveh. We meet God in messy places. And when we go to Nineveh, God's going to do things that we're going to be like, I didn't see that coming. And I don't know if I like it. And God's going to be like, well, since you don't like it, I'll totally change my mind next time. <laughs> right? Like, we, we often think we have some kind of a barter system with God. Jonah wants to go to paradise. But God's in Nineveh. If we want to meet God, we've got to go to Nineveh. If we want to meet Jesus, he's not in Herodium. He's in a stable in a dark, heavy, harsh environment. The Advent season invites us to Bethlehem. There's no it's no place. It's no place. And, and the, like, why? Well, let me show you another picture. So this is actually in Bethlehem, in the Church of the Nativity. And if you come with me to Israel, I will not take you here. I refuse to go into this church. I've been in it twice, and both times I want to take a shower after I come out. I'm just, I just feel gross. Here's the thing. Uh, it's the oldest continuously standing cathedral still being used for its original purpose. Um, there's a lot of qualifiers in there, but it's an old building built by Constantine's mom. Um. So that's a big deal. So uh, used to have these big, and it still has the archways, but it had these great big doors 
um, that were the entrance to the, to the cathedral. And what would happen is um, any time that a conquering army would come through, they would ride their horse or their camel through those doors and into the cathedral like, da, 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 we conquered it. Um, and they would desecrate, desecrate the cathedral. You can imagine how horses and camels desecrate the cathedral. Well, they got tired of that happening, so what they did was they took the doors out and they bricked the archways in till there's just this little tiny doorway. It's about this big. So you literally, every single person has to get down on their knees like this and go through the doorway like this. It's tight. It's a tight fit in there. Um, and people are like, oh, look, they're taking the posture of worship. No, they just didn't want desecration. They didn't want to have to clean up desecration. Um, that's what happened. Now, when you go into this cathedral, it's massive. It's it's big, big hallway. And up on the top of this ceiling on this side is this big gold leaf mosaic. So it's a mosaic mural, and it's probably 20 feet tall and 60 feet long. Like, it's huge, and it's all gold mosaic tiles. Gold, like not gold-plated pieces of gold in, in, in this big mural uh, that depicts a battle scene from one of the crusades. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if that's the message we want to put on our wall. But you get in line and uh, turns out you better be quiet because um, I came up and, and I saw this poor box. And so what, the line conveniently goes right by the poor box. And you can give money in there to give money to the poor, right? Which is a good thing. We should give money to the poor, right? We should do that. Say yes. Thank you. I don't know. No, we should do that. We should do that. And um, so this is there. And I was like, I was talking to somebody else that was with me in the line. I was like, hey, did you see this poor box? Um, and one of the monks walked up to me and went, shh. I was like, oh, it made me, it made me feel, um, when I was growing up at church, so my, me and my buddies would sit together in church. Here's the deal. That's a bad idea. Little kids, like seven, eight, nine years old. And every mom had a snap. And so we we would be we'd be sitting together, and dad my dad would be preaching like too long again, and and we didn't understand what he was talking about again. You know, like I don't have a clue what you're saying, dad. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. And uh, we'd start you know punching each other, whatever, joking, joking around. And then all of a sudden you'd hear this. Who's ever kid that was that mom was like, that's how I felt when that monk came up to me. Sorry, mom. Like, don't ground me. That's, that's how it felt. It was like apparently holiness and happiness don't exist in the same space for him. But that, that's there. You'd be quiet around in this holy place. Now, I, I'm standing in line, and I take this picture like this, with my phone. 
Something went. For the people in the back. Okay. I literally didn't move my feet. I did this. And took this picture. That chandelier is easily worth a quarter of a million dollars. And there were seven of them hanging in the cathedral. Alongside this gold leaf mosaic, right? And, I, and I'm looking at this going, this is what we do with Christmas. This is what we do with Christmas. It's on one hand, we have this opportunity to go to these broken places, but the problem is we keep trying to make it look pretty. But the narrative of the scripture, even to Jesus' birth, is not an invitation to pretty places. In fact, so the, the cathedral is built over what was supposedly the cave in which Jesus was actually born. Now, we don't even know for sure that Jesus was born in a cave, but that being said, there's thousands of caves in Bethlehem. There's no way to know that this is the right one. But according to Constantine's mom, it was, and therefore, according to church tradition, it is. And what's happening is they, uh, it doesn't even look much like a cave anymore because, so you go all the way through the church and then you go kind of down behind um, the stage and you walk down these stairs down into this cave. Well, um, people who are of the Catholic persuasion love their icons. They love stones and rocks and bones and different things that they can, like this is the heel bone of Peter, whatever. Like throughout the centuries, the Catholic church has made a lot of money selling these kinds of things. Well, what happened is, when uh, Catholic people would go down the stairs into the cave, they wanted to remember this moment. So what they would do is they would try to pick a piece of the rock off and take it with them. <laughs> so many people started doing that that they actually started to erode the foundation of the church. <laughs> like, hey, if you keep taking rocks, the church is going to fall. So they put tapestries up over all the walls in the cave so that you can't do that. So it looks like you're going into a Bedouin tent. And there's not a lot of circulation down there. It wasn't built with a ventilation system. And it's hot, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people go through there every day, right? So it just stinks. And I'm like, no. Not going, not going back there. Uh, I th I'm not, I mean, this is just the gospel according to me, but I think COVID-19 started there. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so many things I want to say right now, but um, none of them sanctified. This is, the, this is what we do with Christmas, is that we try to make it pretty. We try to make it beautiful and sleek and expensive and fancy, and we try to, we try to but, but the story of the Advent isn't about pretty and sleek and fancy. It's not about that. It's about the stables of your life, which raises this question, where are the stables in your life? Like, we don't want to, we don't want to talk about that, but we have them. We all have brokenness, and, and it's best for us to come to terms with that because what, what happens is we all try to act like we have it all together. But here's the interesting thing. We're like, man, if people knew my brokenness, they wouldn't like me. Actually, the opposite is true. When you have it all together, people want so badly for you to fall. But we love a good underdog story. 
where every obstacle was in their way, but they endured and they overcame and they won. We love that story, but when somebody has it all together, we're like, like think about um, the New England Patriots, right? Like, don't, don't, I don't care if you like them or hate them, but when Tom Brady was a quarterback and they were just like, oh my gosh, New England's in the Super Bowl again. Can somebody beat them? We wanted them to lose. Why? Because they always win. That's what happens when people always win is we want them to lose, right? I had, between services, I had somebody that came up and said, hey, um, I'm from New England and I just want you to know that the Patriots are God's gift to us because we also have to be Red Sox fans. <laughs> I was like, you know, that's fair. Um, that's, how do I argue with that? That. Um, but we, we want the person on top to fall. It's the, it's the broken, the hurting, the, the ones that are keep, they're trying to get up, but they can't seem to get ahead. Those are the ones we want to help and to get them to succeed. And here's the funny thing, is that we all have those spaces in our life, and yet um, we keep trying to pretend like we don't. And I don't understand it. 1 Peter 5 says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Well, Think about that for a second. If Satan wants to devour you and him devouring you would be you doing the opposite of what God wants and what God wants is for you to cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you, then the opposite of that would be not casting your anxieties on God, right? Make sense? So a great like plumb line for whether or not I'm and the right mindset for the holiday season is where's my anxiety at? How, how am I, how am I feel? How am I feeling about the, oh, I hope so-and-so doesn't give me a gift. Because if they do, they're going to expect one in return. And I got that bunk cake from last year around here somewhere. I will just re-gift it. It's still good. Still good. Like, we, we do this, like, what am I going to do? What, this, uh, and we see it, like, um, I've had lots of friends who are in the service industry, and they hate working at this holiday season because people are so stressed out. Like, they just, they get treated really poorly because people are so stressed out. Like, i got to get the gifts. i got to da 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 Cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Like the right space for us in this holiday season isn't anxiety. So if we're feeling anxiety, it's because we're misaligned spiritually somewhere. Somewhere. And at least we've got to be honest to explore where. Here's a question. God is Everywhere. Right? And so why does he choose to make us aware of himself in a stable? Why does he need that? And, and you think about the metaphors in the scripture, it doesn't really matter which one it is. We've talked about the desert. We've talked about Jonah. 
Um, the, doesn't matter where we go, seems as if God keeps wanting to meet us in the dark, heavy, hard places, the broken places. Like that seems to be the space where God keeps inviting us to. And the question is why? Why does he care so much about that? Here's why. Philippians 4. It's one of the most misunderstood passages. Not that I'm speaking of, of being in need, for I've learned whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, that's not a prayer to say, God, I, want, I have this dream I'm chasing, so I'm going to pray, and then God's going to give me the ability to do it. It's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is, regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in, is Jesus enough? Why does God keep wanting to meet us in our stables? Here's why. Because when Jesus is all you have, what you figure out is that Jesus is all you need. We don't need anything else. People read the book of Job anytime they're having a hard time, right? Like my... My toothbrush needs to be replaced. The Lord's testing me. Something really serious. Um, coffee was burnt. Something. And, that, and I'm not making light. Like we, we have real things that we face. And we, we read Job and we're like wrestling with this question of why bad things happen to good people. Right? Job had all these bad things. He was a good person, all these bad things. Why do bad things happen to good people? That is not the point of the book of Job. And when we read Job in that context, it really can be misleading and mis it can be deceiving because it's hard to wrestle with that question. The point of the book of Job is this. If you take everything away from you, is Jesus enough? Is he enough? And because he was for Job, God was able to bless him manifold, double, triple over what he had gotten previously. This is why we have to meet Jesus in our stables. Because it's in that space that we figure out that Jesus is all we need. And, and when we keep trying to chase all these other things, it's just a distraction to the reality. Uh, I read a quote a couple weeks ago from the book Prototype by Jonathan Martin. I want to expand that quote. Uh, I'm going to read that quote that we read a couple weeks ago will be in this quote, but it's bigger. So we spend so much time trying to not come to terms with our brokenness. We want to avoid it. I don't want you to think that I have messed up places. Because you might think less of me. We just offered John the Baptist's statement at this point where he said, I must decrease and he must increase. Like it's almost as if the Bible invites us to say, you should think less of me. Because in thinking less of me, we think more of Jesus. We think more, like, man, Aaron really is an idiot. How, there, there has to be a God. Like that, that's true. And if that's my testimony to you, then praise Jesus. I don't, you don't have to, like, Aaron's amazing. No, Aaron's a moron. But we spend so much time trying to avoid 
those spaces. Here's what Jonathan Martin says. Our scars are more than just the sum total of our tragic memories. Scars speak of identity, of calling. In fact, I would offer that you can't take hold of your identity without suffering. Scars speak the truth of who we are beneath the deception of our facades. It's no wonder that when Paul wrote to the early Christian communities, he always spoke of the scars he had accumulated from persecution for the sake of Jesus' name. The message embedded in our scars, the code encrypted implicitly beneath the ruptured skin of our, or emotion is not just about our pain, but about God's faithfulness. Scars tell the story of who we really are and where we've really come from. And even when we refuse to speak the truth with our eyes or our lips or even to ourselves, like the rings on the interior of a tree, like everything, everything you could ever want to know about a person can be read from their scars. This is part of what it means to follow Jesus in becoming people from the future. We become the kind of people who no longer have to hide their scars. Our scars reveal who we are. The fact that we've experienced profound suffering in life, the fact that we carry what may seem to be unsightly scars does not disqualify us from following Jesus. It may be precisely what qualifies us. So good. I wish I would have said it. I hate, I hate it when somebody else has a good insight. I'm like, oh, it's so good. I'm going to steal it. Like, so good, right? Like, it's your brokenness that endears people to Jesus. It's your brokenness that endears people to Jesus. I have so many people, I hear this regularly, like, it's weird that you talk about going to counseling. And I'm like, why? And they say, well, I asked one person specifically, like, why do you have a hard time with me talking about going to counseling? This is what she said. She said, because it seems like you don't have it all together. <laughs> I have a revelation. <laughs> I do not have it all together. I feel like in many senses... Anyone who finds themselves in a position of spiritual leadership is just a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Like there's not, there's not any kind of like, check me out. No, really, check me out. Um, it just doesn't, doesn't appeal. And, and part of my fear is the, the, the rock star pastor mentality with, um, and, and I mean, it goes both ways. The, the pastor's receiving it, but the people are very free to give it. Um, it's not healthy. It's not good. It's not good on the ego of a person who's broken. Like I, can, I can tell you this. Every single person needs people in their life that can look at them in the eyes and go, you don't impress me very much. With the best of intentions. Like not somebody that's just being a jerk, but somebody that loves you and says, listen, I, you don't impress me very much. Everybody needs those people. When we don't have those people, we start to believe our own press. That's why Proverbs says the praise of men is a test for you. The praise of men is a test for you. Like, it's just way easier um, 
to pretend like we have it all together. The problem is eventually that house of cards falls because I'm, I'm not perfect. Implication number one. The Savior showing up in Bethlehem tells us a particular story about how God wants us to remember this holiday. And again, I'm not telling you what to do with Christmas. What I'm asking you to do is to consider what it might look like to explore the Christmas season from the perspective that the Bible gives it to us. Implication number two. What are the stables in your life? That might be a good thing for you to have a conversation with God about. Maybe wherever you have your spiritual conversations this week, um, maybe this should be a part of the discussion. Implication number three. We often want to experience our relationship with God in the pretty places of our lives, but God isn't in paradise. He's in Nineveh. And we meet him there. Implication number four. The messy places in our lives aren't there to be avoided. They're there for us to experience more of the presence of God in our lives in a growing way. The messy places in our lives aren't there to be put in the back closet to pretend like they don't exist. They're there for us to to show up and and watch God show off. Because here's the cool thing about the gospel. Like Jesus died to save you. He did. I don't know if you know that. Jesus died to save you. But here's the better part of the gospel, in my opinion. He also died to heal you and set you free. And we don't talk a lot about that part of the gospel because it's hard. In order to do that, I have to reveal my own problems, my own brokenness, my own stuff. As we move into our communion time this morning, I would just ask you to wrestle with this question. Like, where are the stables in your life, first of all? And where have you tried to make it look like in your life you only have castles? Where, where are these places where things are getting confused? Because Jesus, laying his life down, taking on humiliation, taking on the sin of the world, is a model for us to live into the broken places, not the pretty places. So where, where are we getting that confused? Let's take a minute and talk to the Lord about that as we get our hearts ready to take communion. The night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him. And then after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, this is the blood of the covenant, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace. God, thank you for seeing us. Thank you for meeting us in the the broken places of our lives. Lord, may we become accurate representations of your heart for all the brokenness in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.